At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and uh, all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Uh, One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Uh, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with another Simon, the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his close attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on his roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds, And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then the voice spoke to him a second time, Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, and they stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, was, Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, the three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs, and don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, uh, I'm the one you're looking for, why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion, He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the other believers from Joppa went along. So then Peter... uh, Peter went with the men, and he was uh, invited to be a guest in the house of the man he went to visit. And so he started out with them and the believers toward Joppa, and the following day he arrived at Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends, and as Peter came to enter the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law uh, as Jews to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon, And suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. 
he is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who, was li who lives by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And so Peter began to speak. And now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, and the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already cho chosen, and I, I am one of them. By us he ate and drank, and we saw him. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who comes to believe in him will have life through him. Now, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of these people being baptized. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordained that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we uh, consider this narrative... And uh, we start this uh, journey together over the next few weeks. I pray for uh, understanding and insight as to the kind of relationship you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so for the next uh, five weeks here over February, we are going to be talking about uh, the issue of racism and how gos the gospel informs uh, our relationship with racism to ra ra uh, racism. And uh, so we hope that you'll come and join us again for these next five weeks. But also we are reading together as a congregation. We have book, uh, two reading groups that we invite you to. The book uh, by Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so we had our first group this morning at 1020. And uh, if you missed that, you can come to the 2 p.m. gathering of that book. You don't have to have read that before. We're just getting started. But our journey over the next five weeks is talking about the gospel and uh, racism. Uh, now let me just uh, caveat our entire teaching series here by saying that uh, I understand that the idea of a white guy uh, getting up and talking about racism may in, it, in itself uh, cause some discomfort to you and possibly to me. And uh, it may also be ironic that uh, someone like myself would get up and uh, present myself as an authority on such an issue, and so I just want to start by saying, I am not an authority on racism. You probably already knew that, but I just want to make sure that you know that I know that. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to journey together. We're going to, we're going to dialogue together. I'm not going to be the only one sharing in, the, in this uh, time together, so we'll have a number of speakers in the next uh, five weeks. But the, the key is we're going to look at the Bible text and see what the Bible has to say about the gospel and racism. And then we're going to supplement that with, again, this, this book that we're reading together as a congregation and in the, in the groups. So we're going to look at the Bible text. And so today we've gone back to the very beginning. We want to look at the Bible text there. Uh, but before we get to the text, I just want to also acknowledge the fact that uh, some of you I know are much further along in this journey uh, dealing with racism than, than others, and certainly of myself. Uh, some of you have experienced incredible acts of racism uh, against you, and I want to just confess that not all of us have had the same experience. In fact, that's one of the, beauty, the beauties of the Avent Hope community here is that we're all coming from different places, but it also means that we have to be understanding with each other. We've all had different experiences, and so some of you are much further along in this journey uh, talking about and dealing with ra racism than others. I'll just confess that as a white guy, my experience, my personal experience with, uh, with racism or having been, been treated uh, in a way that uh, would qualify as racism has been pretty small. In fact, it's pretty easy. I'm just going to confess on behalf of I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of all white people, but I'll, I'll, I'll confess that it's pretty easy as a white guy to like ignore either intentionally or unintentionally uh, the racist things that are going on in, in the culture. Okay. In fact, I would dare, dare say that the most of the white folk that I know think very little about racism. That's just the reality, right? They, and that's unfortunately the tragic uh, privilege of being uh, white, is that we don't have to think about it until something dramatic happens. So I just want to acknowledge that we're all coming from different places. Some of you may be like, I can't believe that would be the case. This is the reality. We're all coming from different places, and so I'm not an authority on this issue, but we're going to try to journey together to figure out how, as a community, we're a little community here, the Avon Hope community, how we're going to figure out how we can be anti-racist. Uh, now, we're going to get back to that term, anti-racist, in just a few minutes. But, uh, again, just wanted to start with that, that acknowledgement. I am not an expert here, but we're going to journey together. And so, may God be with us on this journey together over the next five weeks so that we can become the kind of community that he's calling us to be. Now, as I mentioned, we are, we're starting at the very beginning. So, Acts chapter 10 is very early in the history of the, uh, the Christian church. And so we see this man, Peter, who has spent three and a half years just before this walking and talking uh, with Jesus. And so he's one of Jesus' close friends, confidants. But we also see that Peter was still immersed in a racist culture. That's just the reality. Even though he spent a lot of time with Jesus, the, the culture that, we, that, that uh, he was a part of was racist. They viewed themselves as being above and, and in a different relationship with God than other people other people. And so the, the church was birthed into a, a racist uh, culture. Uh, this idea that they were, they were the, 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 the best had permeated the, the understanding and the ideas of uh, people in the culture. And so uh, Peter is a part of that. And we see him reconciling with that issue here in Acts chapter uh, 10. And by the way, this is somewhat ironic because, you know, Jesus had a lot of interactions. We'll talk about this later, but Jesus had a lot of interactions that you would have thought would have challenged the racism that was a part of the culture, but it just didn't completely get through. And so now Peter is, is, is confronted with this uh, issue of racism in his own experience. So as the story goes, and by the way, it's kind of, this is one of those fun stories where you have like uh, 
two things happening at the same time in the narrative. You have Cornelius in his house. We're told what's, what's happening in his experience. And then it's, it's uh, mixed with Peter and his experience, and they're going to converge together in the story. So Cornelius, the angel comes. It's this dramatic thing. He is not of, of, of Peter's people, not of their lineage. And uh, so he sends the men. They come. Peter, in the meantime, is having this incredible a vision about the, these unclean animals invited to eat. Uh, we know this story it has nothing to do with diet. This was, a, this was a, a vision for him being accepting of these people who were coming. And so the, the, the sheet comes down three times, and then suddenly three guys show up at his door, doorstep. This is God slowly trying to get through to Peter about what's going on. So then Peter does a, a, an unbelievable thing. Again, if you're reading this first century uh, from Peter's culture, the idea that Jesus, uh, that uh, Peter would invite these, these people into his home. They were waiting at the gate. They were very respectful of uh, Peter's cultural reservations. They wait at the gate. They call out to Peter. They don't barge in. Peter invites them in. They spend the evening together. Huge, huge deal, right? Then, even further deal, Peter travels uh, with these three men to go visit Cornelius. This is God kind of breaking down these, these racist assumptions that uh, Peter had. And then, so then Peter gets to the, to the door of Cornelius, and Cornelius, again, uh, knowing the, the, the cultural tendency of Peter, meets him at the doorstep, because he knows that normally uh, a, a guy from Peter's background is not going to come into his house. I mean, that's too much to, to even ask. And so he bows down at the, 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 the intersection at the, at the, the door stoop, and, uh, and Peter tells him, get up, get up, I'm just a man, and then enters the house. Again, for us, what's the big deal? Anybody, if you're in first century and you're part of uh, Peter's culture and you hear this, huge, huge deal. And so Peter goes in. He has this uh, incredible experience. He comes to recognize what God is doing. Verse 34 of chapter 10, Peter began to speak. So he's, gonna, he's getting ready to do his preaching. But he, again, he has that caveat at the beginning. I now re realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. This is mind-blowing. But he accepts from every na nation, that's ethnos, from every ethnos, the one who fears him and does what is right. And so Peter, in a very short amount, amount of time, is going through this kind of mind-melding uh, uh, introduction to God's reality that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for a special group of people. And he has to come to terms with that. And so keeping in mind that he's got this group of people that are called the, the, the un, specifically called the uncircumcised group that is with him. That's kind of a, identifying one of the special marks of, of, of Peter's people. But uh, when the Spirit comes down on this group of, of uh, sorry, they were circumcised. They're amongst the uncircumcised. When the Spirit comes down among this other group of people who are not from Peter's background, nobody can deny that God is at work among the group there among the group that is from a, another ethnicity, another race, if you will, than, than Peter. And so everybody has to come to terms with God is up to something, and now to recognize that God's work is not just for them. It's not just for the special people. It is for uh, everyone. And so this helps us to see, too, as we think about the church and we think about being community, that, hey, absolutely, the gospel is for everyone. Nobody is left out of the, the gospel promise. It is, God's work is designed to help everyone. And so may we too also come to the same recognition that Peter did, that God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't show uh, favoritism. God is inviting all of us, every human on the planet, 
uh, into his community, and this is groundbreaking and radical uh, news. God is for everyone. And so our text today helps us to understand, again, this relationship between the gospel and racism. The idea is that the gospel is supposed to abolish uh, race, racism. Now, I want to get back uh, to this, this term, anti-racist. It's not a term we find in the Bible. Um, in fact, quite frankly, I hadn't heard the term until Ibram X. Kindy's book. And so, uh, while we're not going to spend a lot of time right now talking about the book, because you can do that in the book group at two, I do want to just address the, uh, the, what Kindy describes as being anti-racist, because I think it applies very much to what we just re read in Acts chapter 10. So if we have that definition on the screen, I'll read this to you. This is from Kendi. He says, what's the problem with being not racist? It is a claim that signifies neutrality. I am not a racist, but neither am I aggressively against racism. Uh, but there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist isn't not racist, it is anti-racist. And so, Kennedy is making the case, as you can see, and he's articulated clearly, that not racist is not good enough. You have to be aggressively anti-racist. And I would suggest to you that was what God was inspiring Peter to do. It wasn't Peter, enough for Peter just to philosophically say, okay, God, you know, I get it, you're, you're for everyone. Peter had to go down off his rooftop. He had to invite the strangers into his house. He had to travel with the strangers, something that he had never done before with this, this group of people, with this type of people, if you will. He had to go into the house, which, by the way, made him immediately ceremonially unclean in his culture. Big deal. Big deal. And so that's what being anti-racist means. It means taking action against the racism that, you, that exists in your culture and your society. And so we see uh, Peter having this conversion experience, this second conversion experience, if you will, to understand how broad and wide uh, the gospel really is, that it's for everyone, and it means that we take action against the racist tendencies that our culture um, may have. And so the call is for the, the church as well to be not just not racist, but to be uh, anti-racist. And so the, the gospel compels us to this attitude and this uh, action to enter the house of the other, to travel with the other, to do and help the other, and to be a part of community with the other. So this is the beautiful idea of the gospel and the church. Now, uh, the challenge is, though, that unfortunately the truth is that, uh, that the church hasn't had a really great history of being uh, anti-racist. I mean, you don't need me to, to tell you that, but I will just affirm what you already know. You know, Christians have a terrible uh, time, uh, actually, of, of propagating racism. And uh, so this is a huge issue, and it leads to, like, our question for you, like, why? Okay, so clearly we have the instruction from the gospel. We have the instruction from God. Jesus' own example is an instruction to us. Uh, Peter acted as an anti-racist here in Acts chapter 10, but why is it so difficult for us and for, particularly for Christians to be anti-racist? Like the instructions are all, all there. We should have figured this out by now. Why are we here 2,000 years after the establishment of the church still struggling with racism in our culture at large, but even, even uh, in our church? And there are a bunch of responses to that, but I have just a couple of, to suggest to you today as we're on this journey together again, not as an authority on racism, but we're journeying together to, to figure out what is going on. Why is it so difficult to be an anti-racist? And a bunch of responses, but here's a couple for you. First of all, 
I would suggest that, that many of us haven't fully accepted how pervasive uh, racism has been through Christian history. So we talked even just about the church. We haven't really come to terms with how pervasive racism has been in Christian history. Uh, and this is kind of back to Peter's statement. Uh, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. At least Peter recognized the inadequacy of his cultural tradition. That you, you realize that this is really difficult for us. Uh, I'm not sure that some of us recognize how pervasive uh, racism has been in, in church history. So just a little historic uh, overview. First of all, you go back to the, the church fathers. This is kind of a name of a group of people who rose up after the initial apostles died. So in the first century, uh, the apostles were pro prolific in proclaiming the good news, writing the New Testament. After they died, you have uh, other, other uh, people come up and, and be influential in the church, other leaders, and we often refer to these as the uh, church fathers. And a lot of their writings we found in the third, fourth, uh, fifth century. And some powerful stuff, really the backbone for many of, much of what we understand of theology and the church and so on. But almost to a person, they were racist. Um, particularly anti-Semite. I mean, they really, really had issues with our Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, you read some horrifying, uh, horrifying things from people that are, are, are promoted as being, like again, backbone of Christian theology. So church fathers had a real, real issue with uh, racism. Go a little further, even to, into the, the Reformation age. In fact, maybe the most famous reformer of all time, Martin Luther, who wrote some amazing things. Backbone of the church, uh, the, the, the Christian Reformation. Terrible, terrible anti-Semite. If you ever go to the uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, uh, D.C., as you end what is a important and yet horrifying experience of going through this museum at the end, they're sketched in stone as a quote from Martin Luther that is just an overtly anti-Semitic. Um, and in fact, many scholars kind of attest the anti-Semitism of Martin Luther and others, a German theologian, to what happened later in the rise of Nazism and so on. And so there was actually unfortunate history between uh, the church and its relationship with anti-Semitism. So the church has a long history of racism going back to the very beginning. The good news is, though, Adventism has just completely avoided this. And we, you know, our tradition, no racism in Adventism, and uh, so we can just move on. We can move on. Uh, you know that's not true. If you know anything about our lovely tradition, for those of you who don't know and you wandered in today, this is a, a, a church from the Adventist tradition, the Seventh-day Adventist church, and so we, many of us love that tradition, but we have got to be honest today that the Adventism even... Uh, has not had a great history when it comes to, uh, to racism. So a couple issues just to, to bring to light for those of you who are un unaware. Firstly, uh, we have this thing called regional conferences. So this may be new for some of you. Some of you are very aware of this. So uh, back some time ago uh, when uh, uh, the, 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 the Adventist message was going to black populations in the U.S., Black people wanted to become a part of the Adventist church, which by that time was already thriving. And so they wanted to get involved in churches, but as you can imagine, they went to get involved in churches and were met with some resistance. Not 
brought into the, the church, well, not incorporated into the church, not welcomed into the church. And so this created a, a lot of tension, but a lot of our, our, our black brothers and sisters wanted to become a part of the Adventist church despite despite this overt racism. And so they, we've got to figure out what are we, we going to do. And so uh, a group actually went to leaders in, in, in Washington and said, uh, we got to fix this problem. We can't even start churches. We're not accepted in the churches. What's going to happen? And so they came up with this idea. Well, we we got to start a separate thing. We got to we got to do. We're going to make it equal, but it's going to be separate. And so we started this whole separate process. Where we have regional conferences, which uh, which is really black conferences at the time. And the idea was they would take care and and minister to black congregations because they weren't being well accepted into the white congregations. So we have. Uh, we have black com- com- uh, conferences, the regional conferences, and we have the white com- conferences. Now, today, that's gotten somewhat more mixed together, but the reality is they, they still exist, and, and maybe for good reason, because there are still racial issues in the, in the church. And so you'll find regional conferences. We right here, we have two conferences that represent this very territory, the Greater New York Conference, and we have the Northeastern Conference. Greater New York was traditionally the white conference, uh, the uh, the what was the the, uh, the thank you the the black conference yes <laughs> I know it well embarrassing me um, so northeastern and uh, Greater New York overlapping same territory but established because you need one black and one white that was the idea so that's part of the history um, of course then this expanded to black schools and white schools and black colleges and white colleges and it just goes on and on. Um, famous story. Have you heard of Lucy Byard? Anybody heard of Lucy Byard? Uh, you, should, you should know this story. So Lucy Byard was actually from Jamaica, Queens, right here. She's a New, York, New Yorker. And this is in uh, 1943. She had some medical issues, some really challenging med- medical issues, and she was really excited to go to Washington Adventist Sanitarium because they had some unique methods to deal with her particular issue. And so her husband wrote the pastor of the Ephesus Church here in New York and said, I want to take my wife to Washington Adventist Hospital. And so wrote a letter. The pastor of Ephesus wrote a fabulous letter to the director of Washington Adventist Hospital and uh, imagined that she was going to be well-received when she went uh, down there. So they got on the train, uh, went down to Washington Adventist Hospital. Uh, Lucy and her husband were black. They arrived at the front door and were told, uh, sorry, we cannot, uh, we cannot minister to you here. We cannot provide services for you here. You need to go over to the, what was to become Howard University's hospital. You need to go, go over there. She disappointed, left over there, died 43 year, uh, days later. Um, and so a huge, huge uh, tragedy and just overt racism. The hospital would not accept her because she was a black and it was white and they... They tried to make excuses, you know, they didn't have a place, they didn't have a room, they didn't have a wing for black people, and uh, this, is, this is where we are. So unfortunately, our Adventist tradition just has just a bad, as bad a relationship with racism as the larger Christian church, and unfortunately, the larger church has just as bad of a history of racism as anyone else. So this is an issue for... Uh, for all, all of us, and without a commitment to anti-racism, we are never going to be the kind of community that God has called us uh, to be. So, issue number one, we haven't fully accepted how pervasive racism has been 
in church history, including our Adventist church history. So, second response to this: Why, why haven't we overcome anti-racist, or why haven't we become anti-racist? That we haven't uh, reconciled the fact that many of our Christian traditions, or cr- traditions that we think of as, as Christian, uh, and may even treat as laws. Remember, Peter said we have laws, and we're having to overcome that laws. Many of our church traditions have been shaped by one particular uh, ethnic culture at the expense of many others. Uh, So Peter, in Acts 10, verse 34, says this, I now realize, so he's getting ready to talk to the group of people to preach, and he stops and says, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So Peter came to realize that favoritism isn't going to work, but the, the truth is that uh, church culture, as we know it, has been shaped by largely by one, uh, uh, one culture. And so this has been pervasive through many elements of the church, art, uh, music, uh, even, even dress. We, um, one of you, I won't identify who, who is very funny and did this in a funny way, but um, uh, found in our children's Sabbath school classes these little um, Bibles. They were like felt Bibles that we had. <laughs> and um, I think the comment was something like, "How did where did we get these like Nazi Bibles? It was supposed to be a joke. But it, the, the truth was, it, she wasn't far off. You know, that you open them and you, 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 it, 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 it's so culturally dominant to the kind of Anglo experience that, which... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure when they were purchased, whenever they were purchased, nobody thought, well, you know, maybe we should be a little more thoughtful about the full diversity of uh, the community. And these were purchased years ago, I'm sure. But um, it, 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 it was striking once you're made aware of it, especially for a white guy who might not think about that until confronted with the fact that we have these and we're giving these out to our kids and our kids are being ingrained with the idea that Jesus is the whitest person that you've ever met in your life. And everybody who prays to Jesus also, is also incredibly, uh, incredibly white, and um, that's a problem. Uh, we, 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 God, there's no favoritism, and so we can't have one culture dominating over all the others. And yet, in church history, in Western church history in particular, uh, this is kind of the case. So, whether it's again art. By the way, have you ever seen a picture of Jesus? Like, what is Jesus? You just think of the your favorite picture of Jesus in your mind right now. Nine out of ten times, that guy is like blonde hair, blue eyes, and the whitest guy, surfer guy that you've ever seen <laughs> in your life. And there's just no way that that, that rep- represents Jesus. You know, Jesus was a Semitic man in the first century. Had he shown up with blonde hair and blue eyes, people's heads would have exploded. It, did, it doesn't work. So... Uh, and yet, this is the, the picture that we have of, of Jesus. He's a white guy. By the way, I mean, just, I'm a white guy. I don't know if you noticed. I know some of you are white here, too. I like white people. I have some friends who are white. It's a joke. Please, work with me here, please. But, but, we, but you know, even, even as a white guy, we've got to recognize what has happened in, in the history of the church and how these things influence the church in, in ways that, that are, end up in racism oftentimes. And so in art, again, our pictures of Jesus, our, our Bible study, by the way, our Sabbath school teachers 
went down and, and cleaned out all of our felts a couple weeks ago because they were just not, the truth is they're just not representing what we want to represent as the diverse community of faith that God has called us uh, to be. And so we haven't reconciled the fact that many of our Christian traditions have been shaped or dominated by one particular ethnic culture. By the way, also think about uh, music. I had this like profound experience. It was, at least it was profound for me. So Sarah and I, when we got married, we went to live in Taiwan for a year. We're going to be missionaries. We're teaching English Bible. That's a whole other story. But I, I, I will not forget the first time we went to worship there in this uh, church. Everyone is speaking a Mandarin. Chinese dialect, so we went and we were there and we're not really understanding much of what was going on until everyone was invited to sing and when they were invited to sing, everyone grabbed a very familiar looking book, the Adventist hymnal. Now everything had been translated, all the words had been translated into uh, Mandarin, but the song, the tunes, the, the metaphors, all of that, they were from Fanny Crosby. The one that I particularly remember famous uh, English song hymn writer, right? And so here we are in this church. The gospel has been taken to these uh, people who speak Mandarin and have their own culture, but what they, they are given all of these songs that are kind of, this is what Christianity is, all of these Western uh, songs written in the 18th and 19th century. And for some reason that just hit me as problematic. That, that here we have this cultural dominance. And of course, this happened all, all times. Missionaries from you know, Western countries go into a, a culture and impose not just the gospel, but impose all the cultural artifacts on. And so people then accept not just the gospel, but they accept the, these cultural artifacts as well as being a, a part of the religion of the Bible. And you understand those are different, right? Fanny Crosby and her hymns are completely different than than the gospel. And we better be careful when we're mis mixing the two. And so for many people in the minds, there's no distinction. And this comes out in many ways. It comes out in music. Uh, it comes out in dress. I mean, let's be honest. Some of the impositions that we have on what we wear when we go to worship don't relate to anything that we would ever find in, uh, in the Bible. Or Jesus, to walk in uh, right now, in the dress that he wore in the first century or any of the disciples, we would be surprised and maybe a little bit un uncomfortable, right? So all of these things are part of the influence of a particular uh, culture, a white culture, on the church. And many of us have just accepted this as being what religion is all about. But the gospel transcends these things. It transcends any particular type of music or, or dress or art. And until we recognize the influence we are going to continue to not be anti-racist. We need to identify what has gone on. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, reasons why we haven't overcome or why we haven't become anti-racist is because being anti-racist can be incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, you know, if you are committed to not just being not racist, but being anti-racist, like, you're, you're going to move to, 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 to be against racism, then you're going to find yourself in situations when people are saying certain things uh, or people are making particular cultural jokes or whatever, 
and it's going to be uncomfortable for you to be an anti-racist. It's going to be much easier to be not racist, which means silent, uh, uh, merge into the woodwork and just uh, go away. And so the, the activeness in finding a way in which we can kind of uh, address racism, that's very, very uncomfortable. And sometimes it may mean that you become somewhat unpopular. And so I think that we've had a difficult time in society at large and in our church because we haven't figured out how to, to get beyond the uncomfortableness of being anti-racist. So all of these things are challenges, and we're going to begin talking about this for the next five weeks, trying to figure out how, as individuals and a community, we can move forward. But the good news is, despite all of these challenges, we've had someone who has come before us who knows what it means to be anti-racist. Right? So uh, Jesus was an anti-racist, aggressively so. He talked to people that he shouldn't have talked to. He, 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 he ate with people he shouldn't have... Uh, eaten with, according to his, his culture. He served a people who he shouldn't have, have served. He died for people that he shouldn't have died for, according to his uh, culture. And so uh, Jesus is the ultimate model when it comes to being an anti-racist. And uh, the good news is that uh, not only did Jesus serve as a model for us, but Jesus empowers us. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 16, maybe the most famous a chapter in all of the Bible, a verse in all the Bible. It says this, For God so loved the entire world. The, the, the verse does not say God, it just shows a group of people, it says the world. For, for God so loved the entire world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes, whoever believes, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Those, those terms, whoever and world, it's so important. It's the whole world and whoever. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter what ethnicity you, you, you're from. doesn't matter where you live, what language you speak. Everyone has the opportunity to be a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus died for everyone. And because Jesus died for everyone, he empowers us and invites us into this community that actually can change the way we think about other people. That's what happened to, to Peter. God was able to change and transform his attitude about himself, about his cultural group, and about other people. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes specifically about this issue of the transformation and change that happens as we continue to embrace God's work in Jesus in relation to racism. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, it says this, In Christ Jesus, which means if you are willing to embrace God's work through Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. See, what happened is those people had connected themselves uh, genetically with a Abraham, the P Peter's uh, peers, genetically with Abraham, and said, we come genetically from Abraham, we are, are special. But Paul says, if you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed. The issue wasn't the genetics, it was that Abraham was a person who believed in God. If you belong to, Cra to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. The good news is, 
It doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is. In Jesus, we are all one. And so we have an obligation to be anti-racist, but we also have the power to do it because of the work of God through Jesus. Now, there are a couple things that we can practically do to join together uh, in, in this work of being anti-racist as we embrace God's work on our behalf. We can also continue to educate ourselves about what is uh, going on in the world, about our, our particular traditions, whether it be our personal traditions or our cultural traditions or the traditions and history of our, our country. We need to know what has happened and what's going on so we can edu- educate ourselves about Christian history or Adventist history or family history or your, your, your country's history. And there are many ways to do that. Um, you can educate yourself by coming to 2 o'clock and starting the book group together. Again, you don't have to have read the book to come to that group. And Jake, where's Jake? Jake is going to lead the book, so you just find Jake, and he's going to help facilitate the group, and you come, and we can educate ourselves together. We can also be self-reflective about the ways in which uh, we've either experienced racism or perpetuated uh, racism. And we can be self-reflective about the ways that we've been racist or we've been not racist and the ways that we want to be anti-racist. So some self-reflection is, is due. And then I think this is a good practice for all of us as individuals and as a community. We should investigate our relationship with each other. Uh, do you know people from different backgrounds and different uh, cultures and ethnicities? And how much time are you spending? When I mean, it's one thing to say hi on Sabbath morning. It's another thing to be engaged and get to know someone who comes from a different place than you come from and a different background and you start caring for that person. And boundaries are broken. Barriers are broken when we start engaging with each other. And so Jesus' call for us to be a one is only going to happen as we exist in real community together, as we spend time together and engage with each other. And so we can educate ourselves, we can reflect on our experience and background, and we can investigate our own relationship with each other. And as we do this, may God do in us what we really can't do all on our own. May he help us to be anti-racist. May we become the kind of people and the kind of community that God is calling us to be. And as we continue to wrestle with this issue, may God uh, guide our journey. And may we always remember Revelation chapter 7. If there's anything you want to remember today, it's Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to read it for you. It says this. It's talking about the end. When, when all things are made new and then when the Lord returns. And it says that this is John, one of Jesus' disciples. And he's describing what he says. He says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude of people that no one could count. And they were from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they crowd out, cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From every nation tribe and tongue and people. May God do that for us here in this community today. Amen.